0: Alright, it is truly wonderful to see all of you here this morning. Let's turn to Romans chapter 9. We'll get into our lesson uh, in just a moment. I do want you to stay for us at the end when we honor our seniors who are graduating this year, going on to a new chapter of their life. We hope that you'll stay for that. Just take just a few brief moments. Do you remember when you were a child, or perhaps our young people here, do you remember maybe just last week, you're sitting in your house, and you hear the familiar chime. You know it's there. You can hear it coming down the street. It's the ice cream truck. You go, and you, you find some money. You ask maybe mom or dad for some money, and you, and you run outside, and there he goes by. You missed it. You missed the ice cream truck. Kind of a bad feeling, isn't it? We hate missing a lot of things. The ice cream truck for one, perhaps a big sale at your favorite store, or maybe you forgot the coupon at home, or you've waited in the Chick-fil-A drive through only to get there and tell you that they are out of their mac and cheese. You missed it. You missed what you wanted. Amen, they do have good mac and cheese. You missed it. You missed what you were hoping for. You missed what you were longing for. Well, what if, you missed the Messiah. In Romans chapter 9, we read of Paul writing to the church at Rome. And part of his motivation here is to help the Roman church see where the Israelites were, who they were, what they had become, and how Jesus interacted with them. The Jewish people have a rich history. As we read in Scripture, we see that God chose them to be a great nation. He led them out of Egypt with great and powerful miracles. Marvelous accounts of their interactions with God and the Son of God. Jesus the Christ was a Jew and would bring redemption to the world. But when Jesus walked on this earth, He had a very tumultuous relationship with many of the Jewish people. Many came to accept Him, and many became Christians. But there were many who said, I I don't know about this carpenter's son. So one might think, especially as educated as the Romans were at that time, one might consider if the Son of God came to save the children of Israel, to save the world from its sins, and He could not reach the Israelites, what, if anything, can He do for me? Not considering those Israelites that did come to know Christ that were baptized on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. Not considering that because it is unfortunately human nature to look at the negative side. To look what was lost rather than what was gained. Well as Paul knew about the church at Rome, as he knew about all the congregations that he he engaged with and, and worked with, Paul was handling their concerns, handling the philosophical questions that were plaguing them in those days. And this certainly must have been a question of the Roman congregation. In Romans chapters 1-8, through Paul works at convincing the Roman congregation and thereby us today about God's glorious provision in Jesus Christ through the Holy Spirit. Paul says in chapter 1 that he is not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God into salvation. And then he also says in chapter 24, he describes the consequences of unbelief. Paul is slowly, through chapters 1 through 8, building a case for the Christ. Because Paul wants to reach those at the church at Rome who are having doubts. Jesus was a Jew, Jesus came to this earth, and there are Jews that said no to him. What about that, Paul? Paul says in chapter 3 that all the world is guilty. And that faith, in chapters 3 and 4, that faith is vital to our salvation. He goes on in chapter 6, believers are dead to sin and alive to God. And then Christ unites us, he contends in chapter 7. And then in chapter 8 we read, verses 31 and 32, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He who did not spare His own Son, but delivered Him over for us all, how will He not also with Him freely give us all things? Don't question this, Christian. New Christians at Rome, Christians sitting here today. Don't question God's love for you. Understand that He sent His Son to die for you, and He wants you to come to know Him. But they had questions, as many may still today. And we're going to handle a couple of aspects from the Old Testament, a couple of accounts that people might question and say, hey, what about this? What about this, Dale? Because they were questioning it then. What about this, Paul? Are you sure God is who he says he is? So in chapters 9 through 11, we're going to look at chapter 9 this morning, but in chapters 9 through 11, Paul deals with the problem of the condition of Israel. The Romans question this a great deal, but many would say that they missed their Messiah why did they miss him? according to Paul's answers that we will consider it's it's because they didn't understand God they had questions about how he acted perhaps also because of pride what does it mean if we miss the Messiah what does it say about God what does it say about our relationship with him at the end of the lesson I hope that you will be more secure in God's love for you, more secure in your salvation, or if you're not a Christian, that you'll make that change today. That you'll see God's love for you as He had it for His people in Scripture, in both the Old Testament and in the New Testament. I hope you'll be more secure after today's lesson. For Paul is focusing on how God saves people. Romans is a beautiful book. He gets deep and down into the human mind and what it is that, that He wants us to see from God as He was inspired by the Holy Spirit to make sure that you today in 21st century America do not miss the Messiah. Let's look in Romans chapter 9 beginning with verse 1. I am telling the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience testifies with me in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed, separated from Christ for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen according to the flesh. Paul is is sorrowful here. His kinsmen, the Israelites, have rejected Christ. And he wishes that he would be accursed. He wishes he would die. He wishes that he could sacrifice himself so that the Israelites would come to know Christ. He sees a gap. Many many people, many Jews came to Christ, but many have not. Paul, being a Jew himself, wonders, why haven't you? He is the fulfillment of the Gospel. He is the fulfillment of the prophecies that we've read about all of our lives. Why is it that you will not come forward and accept who He is? The Israelites have rejected Him. And Paul is ready to go on and sacrifice himself for that cause. That's how much he believes in it. That's how zealous he is for the souls of mankind. These people, he says in verse 4, they are Israelites to whom belongs the adoption as sons and the glory and the covenants and the giving of the law and the temple service and the promises. Paul, as he writes those words inspired by the Holy Spirit, is looking back in his mind all the way to when Jacob was promised, Abraham was promised, that a great nation would rise above, rise up and be a great nation to bring about the salvation of the world. Paul is writing these things and he is commending the Israelites for who they were in their history and in the history of the world. Let me read it again. The Israelites, it belongs the adoption as sons, the spiritual adoption, and the glory and the covenants and the giving of the law, and the temple service, and the promises, whose are the fathers, and from whom is the Christ, according to the flesh, who is over all, God bless forever. Amen. So he ends this section in verse 5, giving them the fact, telling them the fact that Christ came through you. The salvation of the world has come through the Israelites, and Paul is is trying to help them see their importance. Paul is trying to help the Romans see the importance of Christ and how, how vital He was to the Israelite people and overall to the world. But who left who? God sent His Son. Jesus lived on this earth. Sent the Holy Spirit. He's with us now. He's with us here in the Word of God. He's here with, as, he, as He lives in each of us. He is watching over us from heaven. God is always there wanting to be with you. The Israelites said, no, we don't want any part of this. Let's look at verse 6. But it is not as though the Word of God has failed. Yes, church at Rome, the Israelites, many did not accept Jesus Christ. Many spoke against Him. Many still do. Many, such as I did, killed those Christians... That's why I'm writing to you, trying to show you that I am you know, a changed man. Some of what Paul is trying to convey to them. But it's not as though the word of God has failed. For they are not Israel, all Israel who are descended from heaven, or, or descended from Israel, nor are they all children because they are Abraham's descendants. But through Isaac your descendants will be named. That is, it is not the children of the flesh, who are children of God, but the children of the promise are regarded as descendants. Has God's word failed? Certainly not. And Paul goes on to say that you know what? Not everyone who is God's chosen was an Israelite. Why? Because the new law has been established. Many people are, are Christians now. There, there's no distinction between Jew and Greek. The Gentile and the Jew can live under Christ now, the Gentile can become a Christian. So not everyone who was God's chosen was an Israelite, and neither are those who were Israelites actually Abraham's descendants. Because they're no longer following God anymore. You see, the Israelites were focused on themselves quite a bit and their salvation. They didn't like Jesus' teachings. They loved the fact that they were from David, that they were of that lineage, and they were very proud of that in those days. And many today be they Israelite or Gentile or atheist or agnostic or what have you, do not like the teachings of Jesus today either. Well, Jesus is who He is. We read of Him in the inspired Word. And He will always be the Savior of the world. But it's people today, some of us even here this morning, who say, I don't want any any part of Jesus, I want to focus on myself. I want to focus on who I am, on what I want to do. Jesus says, come to me and change yourself. Be a new person. Be born again, which I'm going to speak on this evening. Jesus says, I don't don't want you to be yourself. I want you to be who I want you to be. And God, in 1 Timothy 2 and verse 4, talks about how Paul writes to Timothy and said, God wants all men everywhere to be saved. You see, as many of the Israelites read the Old Testament prophecies, they would see how important they were and would get puffed up in this and and, and in the fact that they were fleshly connected to the Messiah who would one day come, fleshly connected to Abraham, their father, fleshly connected to so many other important people in their history. But then this, this simple carpenter comes and says, You know what? I'm the Son of God. You, Jesus, are you sure about that? Miracle after miracle, they continued to deny Him because they were so concerned over their fleshly connection rather than the spirit of what God was trying to do to bring all men to salvation. Because you see, as Paul continues in chapter 9 and verse 9, it is the promise that is more important. Romans chapter 9 and verse 9 says this, For this is the word of promise, at this time I will come and Sarah shall have a son. And not only this, but there was Rebekah also when she had conceived twins by one man, our father Isaac. For though the twins were not yet born and had not done anything good or bad, so that God's purpose according to His choice would stand, not because of works, but because of Him who calls." It was said to her, The older will serve the younger. Just as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Here, in this moment, Paul is writing to the church at Rome and talking about how God chose who would establish His people on earth. And this choice started with a set of twins. Jacob and Esau. But as you see in the passage The choice was not based on what they did. The choice was not based on the works of Jacob and Esau, for he decided this before they were even born. The choice was not based on their human performance, but rather on God who made the decision. See, the flesh is not important, but rather it is the promise that is important. God promised that Jacob would be the chosen one. Jacob I have loved, and Esau I have hated. Now hold on a second. Hold on a second, Paul. God is love. I know that part. How is it that God says that He loved Jacob, but hated Esau? It's One of the confusing parts, right? That's why many people, even today, choose to leave God. Well, I just don't understand it. Well, hold on. Paul's trying to help us understand it as he writes here in Romans chapter 9. Commentaries are good, and good study helps in many ways. You choose the right one, but sometimes the Bible is also its best commentary. Verse 9 again, For this is the word of promise. God made a promise. But he says here, God loved Jacob but hated Esau. Scholars contend that hate here means to love less. As, as wonderful and beautiful as our English language is, especially when spoken in the southern tongue, sometimes it can be lacking. Sometimes it can be lacking. There could be a better word here, but it simply means to love less, much like Luke 14 and verse 26. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father, what did Jesus tell us to do? To love our father and mother. Did he not? Well, here the idea being conveyed is a little different, but certainly it is not hate. Certainly it is not hate, but rather to love less as we think about it in our own lives and in our own minds and language. So many people would say, well, I'm not going to follow Christ because, you see, see, he hates. He even hates babies that haven't been born yet. How about that? Well, as you consider a little bit more of what Paul is trying to help the Romans understand, I hope you see it today as well, that God is a God of love who makes promises. And the result of this promise is it is not just one group of people being saved and being able to enter into eternal glory, but rather an entire world that has that opportunity. And sometimes God did things that we humans cannot understand. Well, Paul here is trying to help us understand as well as he can. A woman walked up to a preacher once and said, I cannot understand why God should say that he hated Esau. To which the preacher replied, It is not my difficulty, ma'am. My trouble is to understand how God could love Jacob. Sometimes we're not a lovable people. Sometimes we're difficult to get along with. Sometimes we falter in our faith, and we must think of it in those terms. How can God love me? How can God send Jesus, His only Son, to die for me, who is not perfect, who, who, who is lacking in so many ways, who does not love as I should, who does not worship, as I should who is not as doing as well as I should be? How can God love me? That's the humble question that we must ask ourselves, but always remembering that the promise, you see, is more important than where one might find themselves in life. The Israelites found themselves in a mighty good position, and they didn't like it when that position was changed, but as you'll see in a few moments, that position was always challenged. That position was always going to be subverted whenever Christ came that position was always going to still be intact in many ways. Christ was simply the fulfillment of that as as God promised it when the world began. Well, does this choosing of God, as God chooses one thing or another, does this choosing make Him unjust? Does this choosing make Him unrighteous? Paul was a, a wonderful Reader of people. He knew what they were going to think. And as someone who writes myself, others of you who probably write, as you write things, you've got to think in your mind, what's a question that somebody's going to ask at this point? What's an objection they're going to have? Because especially in writing letters that had to be you know, handwritten and then sent and then days or weeks would go by before it would get there, you, know, you wanted to make sure you made the most of your time whenever you wrote, God chose Jacob. God chose the Israelites, and some of us today, some in these days, some in, in our day and in theirs, well, that's unfair, God. You never gave Esau a chance. Let's look at chapter 9 and verse 14. What shall we say then? Paul knew what they were thinking. There is no injustice with God, is there? May it never be. For he says to Moses, Talked about this last week, Exodus 13. He says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. And I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. You see, God gets to choose. He gets to make decisions. He gets to make plans. He gets to set things in motion that He wants to set in motion because He is a wise and honorable God. So then it does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs but on God who has mercy. Mercy, you see, is not getting what we deserve. But sometimes people think to themselves, well, well, don't I deserve mercy, God? Don't I deserve that that same mercy? I'm sure that's what Esau thought as he learned and realized what was going on. Certainly people in, in, in Paul's time were questioning that. Why did he love Jacob but hate Esau? Well, Why did he do that? Well, God will have mercy on whom he will have mercy upon. God is never less than fair with anyone, but fully, fully reserves the right to be more than fair with individuals as he chooses. Jesus spoke of this right of God in the parable of the landowner in Matthew chapter 20. When the, when the workers were complaining, you're paying the late workers the same as the early workers? Don't we deserve more? You see, our human interactions, our human thoughts, selfishness and pride gets in the way of what God tries to do, and we start questioning Him. We, in our physical bodies, with our with our gray matter, start to question the omnipotent God who created all things. God, You're unjust. We wag our fingers at Him as we sit and breathe His air and admire His Son and admire His creation. You're unfair, God. God can certainly show mercy, I believe, on whom He will show mercy upon. And that's what Paul here is trying to convey to the church at Rome. In verse 16, we read this. Let's focus on this for just a moment. It does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs but on God who has mercy. God's mercy is not given to us because of what we wish to do or because of what we actually do, but simply out of His desire to show mercy. I used to hate running. Whenever I would run, I would just get so out of breath, especially when I was a little fella. I would just run and run and run and I uh, looked a lot like the guy on the left, and Richie Roberts looked like the guy on the right. He was my best friend growing up. He could run like the wind, about half my size. That was one of the reasons. Who wants mercy? Both do. I wanted mercy in those days. The one on the left wanted mer- wants mercy. The one on the right, who was in better shape and still running, he's still sweating. Right? He's still doing what he's been asked of, he's still still straining himself. Both want mercy. But let's ask this. Who needs mercy? Who needs the mercy that is allotted to them? That God, in His character and in His nature, says, I will give mercy on whom I will give mercy. And it's part of what His decisions are. We can't dictate to God what we would want Him to do. You know, I would try, as I would run by the coach, I would really, you know, try to, oh boy, this is, this is tough. I'd try to show him how hard I was working. Hopefully he'd make us run two laps instead of three. Finally that mercy came and we were all glad of it. But who wants the mercy? All of us do. But who needs the mercy? The one on the left. And it's up to God to determine those things of who, who needs it exactly. We read in verse 17, Paul brings about another issue that even I myself have wondered about. The hardening of Pharaoh's heart. For the Scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I raised you up to demonstrate my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed throughout the whole earth. So then he has mercy on whom he desires and he hardens whom he desires. Sometimes God will choose to do things through showing mercy. Sometimes God will glorify Himself through a man's hardness. That's what we see here. We should not think, though, that God persuaded an unwilling, kind-hearted Pharaoh to be hard towards God and Israel. In hardening the heart of Pharaoh, God simply allowed Pharaoh's heart to pursue its natural inclination. Most likely, it's what Pharaoh would have done anyway. But through what God wanted to pursue in life, through what God needed to have happen in Scripture, He showed mercy to Jacob. He showed mercy to Moses in such a way that He chose. He hardened Pharaoh's heart. It was his purpose. It was his choice to do those things. You know, you ever go to a restaurant or go to a place that's heavily managed and you'll ask yourself, why did they do that? Why, why don't they do this? Or, you know, you who've been in the place for five seconds know better about the management, right? No, of course not. We who have been on this earth in a very small amount of time, many think they know better than God. It's God who displays the mercy. It is God who shows the justice. It is not up to us to say, Lord, it is my right to, to have mercy. We're, we're too obsessed with that. We're too obsessed with God showing us mercy because He will show the mercy to whom He will show the mercy to. Chapter 9, verse 19. Paul again, knowing what they're going to say, You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who resists his will? So then, what can man do? If God did this to Pharaoh... God did this to Jacob, if God put all these things in place, what can I as a man do? Many start to think that this is where predestination happens. That because God is all-knowing and omnipotent and all-powerful, then man has no choice about what he does. But in fact, God chose those moments that we just referenced to do those things that He would have man do to bring about what he needed to have brought about, whether through miracles, through the children of Israel learning something or bringing about his son. We know that man has a choice. Matthew 10, 38, He who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. Jesus has asked all of us to take up our cross and follow him. That is a choice. That is a choice. But Paul knew that this philosophical argument would come up. Why does he still find fault then? For who can resist his will? God loves us and God gives us a choice to live as we will, thankfully. On the contrary, who are you, O man, who answers back to God? The thing molded will not say to the molder, why did you make me like this, will it? There's a little corner shop in Pigeon Forge. It's right next to the Old Mill restaurant and they make all these pots and these mugs. And it's great because they're all just a little bit different and unique. But does that mug, ask the potter, why did you make me like this? It's just how it is. God made you the way he made you. And should we ask, Lord, why did you make me like this? Why did you make me this tall, this short, with this voice, with this color hair? Why did you make me like this? Certainly it's a question that many people ask. But Paul questions. He questions the validity of the question itself. By bringing out the example of the potter. Or does not the potter have a right over the clay? Indeed, God does have a right over us. To make from the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for common use. If you've ever thrown clay, you know that from one, from one lump you can make a mug. You can make a bowl. You can make a spoon. Make all kinds of different things. And Paul is bringing out that example here. We must realize our position with God. And that He is the all-knowing. And it is not us that is all-knowing. And in regards to salvation, the only choice God has made was to save all of mankind. Paul is handling these questions. Oh, well, you know, God did this. Don't you think He should have done this? That's what the Romans would ask. But Paul is going to tell them in just a moment, you know what, the Israelites had a choice and you had a choice as well. Let's look at chapter 9 and verse 25. He says also in Hosea, I will call those who are not my people, my people. And her who was not beloved, beloved. So we see in the prophet Hosea that even then he is alluding to the fact that there will be people who will be his people that at one time were not. And through Christ we see that today. And it shall be that in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there there they shall be called sons of the living God. God has set many things into motion. And we're going to talk in a few weeks about what God's plan might be for your life. Well, God's ultimate plan is that all men would come to repentance. We read of that in Scripture. That all men would turn from their old ways and respect their Creator. And respect the fact that God is able to make choices whether we agree with Him or not. Now the good part about this as well is that you also Get to choose. We like that. like choosing. Like knowing where we're going to eat, where we're going to have to eat, where we might go on vacation, what we might wear. We all get to choose. Chapter 27, verse 27 rather. Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the sons of Israel be like the sand of the sea, it is the remnant that will be saved. For the Lord will execute His word on the earth thoroughly and quickly. So even though the Israelites were his chosen people, only a remnant would be saved. And just as Isaiah foretold, unless the Lord of Sabaoth, the Lord of hosts, had left to us a posterity, some translations say seed, we would have become like Sodom, it would have resembled Gomorrah. What happened to them? They were dissolved, basically. They were destroyed because of their wickedness. And here Paul is referencing Isaiah and is saying, you know, we we have been given a chance. We have been given a chance to make a a better choice. God put that seed, the Lord of hosts showed us a different and better way, and we have a choice to make different decisions than, than what Sodom and Gomorrah did that did not change their ways, that did not make a difference in their life, that stayed where they were spiritually, and then they paid the consequences for that. By all appearances, Verse 30, let's read this and then we'll get to that part. What shall we say then, Paul says, that Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness attained righteousness, even the righteousness which is by faith? So they're thinking, Jesus didn't come for the Gentiles, but lo and behold, here they are. They like what he's telling them. They like what Jesus is teaching and they want some of that. And how did they come to this knowledge? It is by faith, he said by faith in God. But Israel, pursuing a law of righteousness, did not arrive at that law. They focused a whole lot on the law the Israelites did. And they arrived at a different part. And this is the irony of the New Testament, is it not? The Gentiles found, found righteousness even though they weren't seeking it. And the Israelites found something else according to the law which pushed them further and further away from Jesus. God wants all men, to be saved. Not because of your bloodline, but rather that you have come into contact with the blood of Jesus Christ. Verse 32. Why did they do this? Why did they not find Jesus? Why did they miss the Messiah? Because they did not pursue it by faith. They looked at Jesus and said, no, I don't think so. The Gentiles saw Jesus and saw something different. But they did not arrive where they should have because they did not pursue it by faith. But as though it were by works, they stumbled over the stumbling block. The Israelites, you see, did not choose wisely and missed their Messiah. Just as it is written, Behold, I lay in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and he who believes in him will not be disappointed. Jesus is a stumbling block to many people because they don't want to accept his teachings. They don't want to listen to what he says to them. They don't want to listen to what he has to say. They want to do their own thing. They want to make their own choices. They want to question God and his because they think they know better. Christ has come, and sometimes, you know, when you find him, whenever you stumble over him, whenever you stumble over something, you realize, oh, hey, that's there. You ever find a a chair leg in the middle of the night? That's where that is. With your little toe, that's where that chair leg is. Sometimes when you stumble over something, you find it. You find what you should have been looking for all along. And I hope Jesus causes you to stumble to that degree. Not such that you falter and fall away, but such that you, you see what it is and you take hold of the teachings of Jesus Christ and apply it into your life today. So if you are not a Christian, come forward this morning. Let us help you with that. Let us baptize you in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit so that you might become a Christian and live a new life starting this morning. Or if you need prayers for forgiveness, let us help you with that as well. Please come as we stand and sing.